hi there everyone hi there listener uh, i'd like to welcome you to episode uh, 59 of the ski podcast uh, and we've got a lot coming up for you today we're going to be discussing um quarantine uh, cool runnings 2022 uh, we're going to be talking olympics and pyeongchang uh, as well uh, a little bit about sustainable ski wear and train travel in the alps but uh, to start off with, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Switzerland Tourism, who are uh, very kindly sponsoring us again for this winter. And uh, a little bit of Swiss news that I thought I'd bring into play. The Eiger Express, if you've ever been out to um, that particular part of Switzerland, uh, there's a new Eiger Express, which will take you up uh, to the Jungfrau. It's going to take uh, about half an hour off the time to get up from Grindelwald to uh, the Jungfrau Joch. It used to be 47 minutes and this is just going to be 15. So it's going to be very fast. I'm hoping to get out there myself at some point. But that is something that we're going to be talking about with my guest today. I have uh, Megan Hughes, who's a digital content manager with In the Snow magazine, and Emily Sarsfield, uh, Olympian, who was in Pyeongchang 2018, if I've got that year right. Hi there, Megan and Emily. How are you? Hello. Very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, we're good. A question I always like to uh, ask our guests. I'll ask it to Megan uh, first. When did you last go skiing? Do you know what? This is actually quite boring because it's, it's the same as before. It's winter. <laughs> I managed to get a, a pre-COVID ski trip in early March. Um, it was about a week after we came back that everything kind of kicked off and locked down. So since then, nothing really. Didn't right, you haven't, you haven't been tempted to go to one of the UK slopes just to get uh, uh, some turns in? Not yet. I mean, I did go water skiing in the Lake District. So okay, water skiing almost counts. I think for the summer. <laughs> and so, uh, Emily, when did you last go skiing? Oh, well, I was one of the ones who got it cut short. I had a ski and yoga camp out in, um, which we've discussed before, out in Maribel, and unfortunately at Easter time, so the last time I was on my skis was uh, in February half term and didn't mm. actually manage to get out at Easter, unfortunately. Right. OK. And where were you in February half term? Uh, I was over in Maribel, Courchevel, kind of the Blue Valley. So I was okay. out there teaching. So okay. didn't actually ski for myself as much. But <laughs> Right. Well, we, you know, skiing is is possible out in the Alps. So we've mentioned before I went out to Zerma, I see uh, that Teen is opening for its autumn season in uh, a four weeks time and the Austrian glaciers, some of them are opening this weekend. But I've got a question. Obviously, we know we're in a quarantine situation uh, just now for most countries. But this is something that cropped up uh, recently. I, I tried to get some answers for this. What do you think about this? Several people are going out. Italy is OK at the moment. So if you go out to Chavinia right now, you can go skiing, but you'd be skiing on the Matterhorn Glacier Paradise, which is in Switzerland. So should that mean that when you come back to the UK, you quarantine? Uh, I'm interested in your opinions. What do you think, Megan? I mean, my opinion would be no. <laughs> um, mostly just because it's kind of a matter of common sense, really, isn't it? Like you're out in the open air. It's not, you know, if you're not stopping and going into a bar and touching things, if you're literally just skiing, then I personally wouldn't think you would have to. But I mean, I suppose it depends how much you're sticking exactly to the rules because, yeah, as you say, technically, 
You probably yeah. well, I mean, your skiing would be in Switzerland, and you know this extends because uh, you know if you're thinking about uh, this winter and say Italy does stay open, um, Emily, you know you can ski from uh, La Tuile into La Rosière, and you can ski in the uh, Milky Way area from Clavier into Sestriere. What do you what do you think about this? Is it really just a matter of common sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy. I mean, we're in a, a a really bizarre situation, aren't we? But um, you're skiing, you're in the open air. It's so fresh. You're you're distanced from people. Okay, the sport I used to do, you weren't quite so distanced. But um, yeah, you've you're in the best place, surely. Um, with all that kind of like fresh air and stuff. So I don't know, you could look at the rule book, but I'm probably not one to be totally rule, rule, rule. I think you've just got to be smart, take calculated risks and um yeah, try and enjoy life as much as you can right now <laughs> well i think we're all on the same page on on that one i'm certainly you know in favor of common sense and in fact i saw a presentation by the uh, three valleys yesterday where the uh, the um head of the three valleys uh, um olivier uh, Desulti, Desulti. Desulti, yeah. um he was basically saying that they're not planning uh, you know, on the slopes no one will have to wear masks yes in queues yes when you're getting your ski hire and on lifts etc but not on the slopes and i think you know the, the the evidence suggests it's pretty hard to get anything if you're skiing around so common sense will prevail uh, one hopes um I don't know if you listened to the last episode of the podcast. We had Mike Richards on, who skied all over the world, all sorts of uh, uh, places, including uh, we've covered before Georgia and Montenegro. I wonder if this season might be the season to to try places like this, because currently still on that green list, uh, are Poland, Slovakia. I've got a feeling one of them might have changed this morning. Slovenia, Sweden, Germany. Have you ever either of you skied in any of those countries? Emily, have you skied in any of them? Yeah, well, I used to went train with um the Polish team and good friend Carolina. And yeah, so they we, we skied over in Poland quite a lot for kind of like training camps and we had it was unbelievable. We'd be up there kind of like with the sunrise and there's literally like no one on the slope. Okay, the is that Zakapani? And well, she actually had a place in Zakopane, but we were actually skiing in Landek, and in Landek there was no one there. Zakopane does tend to get a little bit busier because that's their kind of like big tourist kind of resort. Um, so that was busy when we kind of drove through there. I've not actually skied there before, but the like the backcountry and stuff, what you can access as well, is pretty like it's pretty amazing. So mm. um, yeah, I definitely recommend um, getting yourself okay. Yeah, go, go try something different, or I, I mean, think well, be skiing in Scotland. Well, Scotland, we discussed in in um, the last uh, episode as well. And I think Scotland is definitely going to be uh, an option. I'm certainly planning to uh, to go up there to do some ski touring. What about yourself, Megan? Have you ever been to Sweden or, or Germany? Uh, Germany I've done, which I've really liked, actually. Were um, you down in Garmisch? Yeah, Garmisch. Yeah. Um, that huge cable car that goes incredibly high. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'd really like to try like skiing in Norway or Sweden or somewhere just a bit different. Like Emily says, you know, if this is the year to kind of not go to where you're used to, then why not try somewhere that's sort of completely different and has all these different elements? Like, as you say, you can there are some places you can ski from 10 o'clock at night through till 1.30 in the morning just because, you know, that's allowed, that's normal, that's done. So that's the sort of thing I think I would really like to do this year, and especially if it means that 
you know you have less worry about is it going to get cancelled all this type of thing am I going to have to quarantine when I get back yeah Although obviously everything is constantly changing so at the moment nothing is guaranteed but I, I do agree I think it's a good time to try something a bit new yeah, nothing, nothing is guaranteed. I've been looking at all, all sorts of things. I believe it's possible to ski in Greece as well. I've been tracking down a, a couple of options for that. Could be, could be interesting. It's harder for me because I would prefer not to fly when um, I go somewhere. But it's, but given that France is uh, one of those destinations where you'd have to quarantine, it's actually apart from Scotland, you know, impossible to to do that at present. Um, but I even looked at um, ski touring on Mount Etna as something I believe is uh, possible, uh, you know, with the right conditions. So we'll, we'll see. Um, thinking, at, you know, again to this season a little bit more, I did see some news, which I'm sure you both uh, came across, which is uh, Crystal Ski, who are the largest UK uh, ski tour operator, have announced that they're not going to be operating any chalets this winter. And that, you know, seems to me to be quite a big decision. Um, I think they were planning to run about 30 chalets, which is nowhere near as many as they, they used to. But I wondered, um, you know, Megan, do you, do you think that, that is significant? And do you think it matters at all? Um, I think a lot of people see that and think that, you know, this is a huge deal and, oh, my gosh, the skiing is never going to be the same. But... I actually don't think it's sort of as big a deal as people are thinking. I think it's basically because a lot of the time the chalets they offer are the bigger chalets, like the chalet hotels and things, where there would be a lot of different groups mixing together. And for a company like that, probably at the moment, they're thinking it's so much easier and with the safety restrictions, it's just better for them to stick to the smaller apartments and chalets and things. Um, but there are, you know, there are lots of small chalet companies that are you know kind of desperate to let people know that chalet holidays are still available chalet holidays mm -hmm. are still happening um and i think they've they've got all the safety restrictions down you know they're very well prepared for this so maybe it's just an ex like an opportunity for people to rather than going with one of the bigger companies actually try something a bit different try a more specialist chalet operator and you know you can have the same authentic chalet experience but it just might be a little bit different this year, as probably everything will. Yeah, well, I, that's a that's a, a good point. What do you think, uh, Emily? The yeah. the chalet side of things. Do you think it's a good decision by them? I exactly the same thought as Megan. When I saw it, I was like, "Oh my god, what a bold move!" And then when I looked into it a little bit further, I actually realised. So I actually then thought, "How does that affect Maribel, being my, my hometown?" Yeah. It works out that they don't have. They probably have about two chalets in the whole of Maribel. So actually it's not really a big thing it just sounds big because they sound like they are a big tour operator but that's not their bread and butter they are more kind of like more apartment-led or hotel-led so where they can segregate people so they're basically just saying we're going to be smart and look after kind of the people who we can make sure we can ensure that kind of bubbles around and stuff like that rather than mixing everyone together so I think it's a smart decision and I don't think it should affect anyone's opinion. Um, like Megan said, there's so many kind of like smaller chalet. If you want that chalet experience, there's loads of chalet companies who can kind of just house your bubble and you still get that great skiing experience. So, yeah, just work out kind of, again, calculated risk. It's come back to me being an athlete, but, you know, just <laughs> be smart about what you you want and you can go out and find that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as a... 
as a business decision because um you know one of the things that uh, we're so we're obviously very uh, wrapped up in the uh, the pandemic and the effect of that but we do have brexit coming up as well and it's still relatively un- and we're going to discuss this uh, more in episode 60 we've got friend of the show dave burrows coming on uh, and we're going to have a little chat about that but it will affect staffing in the alps and i think that um you know to a certain degree crystal are mitigating uh, the issue because you need staff for chalets you don't necessarily need as many staff uh, or as skilled staff if you're not running a chalet operation uh, but there are as you say emily there are plenty of chalets available uh, in the alps and uh, you know in varying sizes and i think you know it's an excellent way if you if you are looking to uh, you know self isolate uh, to book but there is there is one positive story I came across in relation to you know coronavirus and the impact on the industry, and that comes from the southern hemisphere, from uh, our friends at Snow's Best. You might recall um, the interview back in episode uh, fifty six, um, but it was about Mount Buller. Did you two see this story at all, Megan? Did you see it? Yeah, I thought it's it's really nice to have some sort of more positive news, isn't it? You know, they're just they're letting people choose their own refund amount. Is that right? From- yeah, yeah. Just just to clarify, what they're doing is if if season if you had bought a season pass for Mount Buller, they're letting individual season pass holders choose what they think their refund should be for the season, regardless of how much skiing uh, they did. Um, and uh, yeah, great story on Snow's Best. I'm assuming uh, there's, a, there's an upper an upper limit there. <laughs> well, no, it says in the article that the upper limit is 100%. So if wow, you really wow. felt that you deserved to get 100% a refund, even though potentially you could have uh, skied for 44 days, then they would let you do that. But I think that it's like one of those um, situations where, you know, you pay well, it is literally you pay what you might. It's the opposite of what you pay what you like, isn't it? But generally, people are people are honest and they will... They will do the right sort of thing, but you could um, get a hundred percent refund if you really wanted yeah. to. Yeah, you like to think honest. <laughs> it's cool that, and also it happened in Europe as well. I don't know if you touched on it before, but in Maribel and the Free Valleys, for instance, um, when you bought the season pass, you got we got a refund. It was partial of the days you skied, and they yeah. controlled how much you got back. But like everyone's doing what they can in the situation to do the right thing and I think kind of like you know one of the worries about people going skiing and stuff like that is like oh what if we lose out what if we lose out everyone's in it together and everyone's trying to help each other out as much as possible so I think that was there yeah it's really nice to get that little refund at the end of end of it when I couldn't ski or whatever but <laughs> for sure and in fact you know in, if you listen or you're thinking about booking a holiday I mean there are some a lot of guarantees. I don't think there's a single tour operator who doesn't have their coronavirus guarantee in place. And, uh, you know, if you read the small print, you'll see there are a lot of refunds. But let's let's stay positive. I have a very positive uh, uh, story. Um, earlier this week, I, I was lucky enough to uh, interview Benjamin Alexander. And uh, he's planning to be the first Jamaican Olympic uh, skier, alpine uh, skier, uh, it's really a kind of story of Cool Runnings 2022, as he as he put it. And uh, I'm we'll just run a little bit of that interview just now. I imagine you managed to get through any interview. You've already brought it up yourself. Uh, uh, you know, Cool Runnings uh, is a, a movie that uh, I think pretty much 
Well, not that everybody has watched it, but most people who love snow and snow sports have uh, have seen it. My kids think it's great. You know, you said you watched it a bunch when you were a kid. So Chris is already ahead of the game there. Um, what do you think about uh, a movie down the track? Absolutely. I I'm capturing a ton of media along the way. I hope that my story can be as inspirational for the next generation of, of winter athletes and just people getting into the sport, let alone athletes. Um, so I'm capturing a bunch of media. If anyone's listening that's into film and would like to be a part of the story and help put it together, I'm all ears. We could call it Cool Runnings 2022. So that is a really, uh, you know, kind of inspiring story. Now, I did a, a ski podcast special broadcast. We've actually got a whole podcast dedicated uh, to that interview. So you can find out a lot more about uh, Benji and his, uh, his journey towards uh, Beijing 2022. Uh, it's also on Facebook. We did it as a Facebook uh, Live as well. But we're lucky enough today to be joined by someone who's actually been to the Olympics already, and that is Emily Sarsfield, who went to Pyeongchang 2018. And I guess we've got to start off by saying, you know, the, the experience that Benji's looking for. I mean, what's it like being at the Olympics, going to the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is the ultimate kind of like sporting stage, isn't it? So for me, kind of like that, been in sport my whole way through life and you know then kind of having the olympics in sight it was kind of like yeah it was definitely the one thing you're working towards for a little bit of a different um line because i believe he started skiing in 2016 now <laughs> i started skiing at the age of two three and huh, right. was probably competing oh gosh I, I can't even probably over 20 years so my probably my my progress to get there might have been, you could say, slower than Benji's or a little bit different. Um, but yeah, so to ultimately kind of like get to reach that kind of le level um, and be in the ultimate sporting stage is kind of like, yeah, massive. When, when you competed at Pyeongchang, how, when did your event, which was ski across, we should just clarify, that's what you uh, took part in. I, am I right in saying that was relatively early on? It's... Uh, yeah. No, so they split it actually. So normally, because we compete kind of not with the men, but alongside, um, the yeah. men's event went earlier on in the programme. And then the women's event kind of happened towards the, the end of the programme. So yeah, we were kind of towards the um, towards the back end of the event. So, so did that therefore affect your um, your experience there? Because presumably the sort of people, you know, if you had an event that was early on and you, you know, it's very exciting. I remember seeing you in the... Uh, I think so in the opening ceremony uh, there and uh, you know you but you've already got to focus and you've got to concentrate and you can't let your hair down um so to speak until your event is over was that frustrating was that difficult at all um to be honest Pyeongchang is quite far away from the UK so actually it <laughs> took me quite a lot of days to kind of like acclimatize so I kind of like had that within my program within my kind of like thought process um so I knew that I kind of, it actually took me about five days to kind of get used to kind of like sleeping patterns and stuff like that. So, um, and a lot of the time we spent a lot of time traveling anyway. So it was the same routines, like daily routines of kind of like being in the gym, doing a power session and then going on the bike and doing your cardio sessions and stuff like that. So you kind of had, you just put your daily life routine into a different situation. Um, also for me kind of like the experience of being there and kind of like getting the motivation and the, the buzz from all the other people when team gb obviously like the skeleton guys who did amazingly well kind of that kind of like goes into your kind of like your confidence and try and helps to build you 
And just to kind of work out what else is going on, like being able to watch the men's event and being like, right, okay, so that's going to happen to me through the finish line and that's going to, where do I need to be? So just working all those little things out so it doesn't become a shock on the day. Um, so yeah, I, you just, it, it's, it is a different scenario, but you've got to put your everyday life into that. But you, you, you've obviously raced many times prior to that. Did it actually feel different? Did it feel, did you have extra nerves at the, uh, at the start of competing in the Olympics, which ultimately, you know, had always been your goal? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is different because you don't normally have like someone, you're basically really restricted and you're kind of like held and moved around kind of like this, I don't know, special being or something. So you're kind of like putting this pod over here on your own and being the only British athlete there for ski cross, it was like me on my own, whereas kind of like the Germans have a team and oh, the way that I've always kind of done ski cross, I didn't have a coach for many years, like, you know, and I kind of only had a coach in the, in the kind of final year of the Olympics. So I was so used to being around those other teams and being kind of like integrated in with them. So to then not be able to keep like to be segregated from them, be pulled away, I was a bit like, oh, didn't quite like it as much because I was a bit like, well, who am I going to talk to? Because I like, I quite like to be talking, <laughs> funny enough. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then, but I suppose kind of for the actual day, I remember being stood in the start gate and I was just kind of, do you know what? This is, this is your shot. This is what you work for. And, you know, you've just, just enjoy it. And that's the biggest thing for me is like the more, if I, I've kind of got this level where I kind of either get too stressed and totally stress myself out. So I, I like to just be chilled and, and I was just like, look, it's time to just go and have fun. You, there's nothing you can do right now, which is going to change. You know how to ski, you know what you're doing. So it's all about putting a smile on your and, face. And you know, it must have been, I mean, obviously I can imagine, well, you know, know that you uh, uh, take a lot of positivity into, you know, all of your racing and, uh, yeah, as it goes, I think we met back when I was doing, you know, natives races in, <laughs> in Mirabel, uh, I'm guessing uh, like uh, 15 years ago or something like that, when you used to come along and win those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, you did miss out on the previous uh, Olympics, didn't you? When, if I recall correctly, you know, what Benji is trying to do is get enough um, fist points to be able to qualify. And he says that, you know, the Jamaican Olympic uh, Committee are behind him. But you had the the points, the the the, the right uh, world ranking to qualify for the Olympics, but you weren't selected for that team. That must have been not only, well, devastating, I should think. Yeah, so I actually missed out on the two Olympics prior. So 2010 through injury and then 2014 through politics <laughs> um mm. yeah so basically yeah I'd, I'd earned my right to kind of get there on the international rules and had the invitation to kind of like be inviting me but Britain declined that so basically in Britain we're obviously a very good sporting nation across the board and that kind of is classed for winter sports as well as summer sports so we have this very kind of like I don't know, arrogant, or I actually, I, I do agree with it, but basically we won't send people to the Olympics unless they're going to really perform, especially with the Winter Olympics, because they say, can, you know, the end of the Eagle saga and stuff, they don't want people to just turn up and kind of like not um, perform and just be there. They want people to go there and really kind of like uh, achieve and, and be competitive. So Britain put in this extra kind of level of kind of criteria which I then did achieve as well, but unfortunately dropped out on the last competition. So I, that's why my, my 
invitation was declined in the end. But yeah, basically, um, it's it was very stressful at the time, very stressful for the period leading up and post. Um, and it was very difficult for an athlete who was fully self-funded and didn't have a coach and didn't have any of this support <laughs> structure to kind of yeah. then be ruled by those rules, which kind of like I can get it for rowing and cycling where they're kind of fully supported and stuff like that. But when you're very much doing it isolated on your own, it was very difficult to kind of like, yeah. And does it, does it feel a bit like, um, I don't know what you'll think about this uh, comparison, but, uh, you know, a premiership footballer from 20 years ago who was, uh, you know, not paid anything like what footballers are paid now. And you look at GB Snow Sports, which seems to be better funded than it's ever been right now and more supportive. And they're trying to, you know, build that squad. Do you feel like maybe your career came a little bit too early, uh, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can always kind of like look at both both sides. And um, but you know what? I think in a way, I was kind of like that pioneer for British um, snow sports for ski cross. So I feel as though kind of like you know my role was that then, and I can't look at it any other way. And whatever challenges I had along that way, I definitely, definitely say they've shaped me as a person. I'm definitely grown from all of those challenges and. In a way, I didn't want it on a plate because it made me be have more hunger. It made me fight that little bit more and and learn those lessons more. So, I I don't know. I think I'd find it really difficult to kind of like have things on a I don't know maybe is the wrong word have things on a plate. But yeah, I I think I would find it really difficult to have that full structure and, and well, the me. fact the fact <laughs> remains that uh, very few people get to represent their uh, country at the Olympics and uh, you have done that so uh, you know what an amazing experience that was and thanks for sharing a bit of it it, it feels to me I, w I haven't mentioned this to you already but um, I'm wondering if maybe at some point in the future we could just do a a one-off like we did uh, with Benjamin specifically about ski across because I think that would be really interesting and then there's lots of people who would like to know a little bit more about that but we'll we'll bank that one for uh for another time yeah 100% cool um okay we're going to move on now to um an interview another interview I did earlier this week uh this was with uh, Alex from a new brand called Kahaya Straits uh, they are producing a range of sustainable ski wear Delighted to be uh, joined here this afternoon by uh, Alex Badini from Cahaya Straits uh, with his business partner, uh, Matt Hewitt. They formed this company recently. We're going to find out a little bit more about um, the sustainable jacket that they are producing. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hi, I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Cool. Thanks for joining us. I, I thought it might be interesting just to start off by um, maybe telling me how you and Matt kind of met and the journey towards the company going live absolutely yeah um so i mean me and matt have been friends for nine years now which kind of feels crazy um we originally met on a ski season uh, back in 2011 the winter of 2011 um, we were put together as part of a big group in uh, a season in the french alps um, it was which, which resort were you in can i ask we were in la plan uh in france right. so i must admit kind of not the prettiest resort when it comes to kind of like it doesn't look like a kind of a I don't know like a Val d'Isere or anything but we had a lot of fun the skiing is great and it's a huge ski area so uh 
yeah, no, we had a, an amazing time there. Kind of a big group of us kind of had, I guess, when you're young and free, it's the time of your life. And then we, as a group, or at least six of us, decided to continue. We followed the snow from from France to uh, to New Zealand and did another season down there, which was amazing. Right. Um, we kind of stayed stayed close ever since. And skiing has been one of the key things that's kind of held us together. And we we try to get together on the mountains as often as we can, really. Great. And when did the idea of, you know, founding Cahaya Straits, coming up with sus some sustainable ski wear come about? Hmm. I would say certainly the, 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 the nugget of the idea kind of certainly came around on those seasons, to be honest. Um, and I suppose we're, we're both entrepreneurial characters. We've both done various entrepreneurial kind of um, ventures in, in, the, in the time since. Uh, and we've always always spoken about different kind of brands. And I think we were wearing different sort of types of things then. We were wearing kind of planks or whatever it might be and all these different different types of things. And then I guess we certainly saw at the time that all the sort of outerwear brands, all the jacket brands all felt the same. And it was definitely a kind of a topic of conversation that we used to have. Um, every jacket was so baggy. Every jacket was oversized. Every Everything was so bright and colorful. And it wasn't really, I guess, stylistically what either of us were really about. So um, I think we probably bought a whole bunch of different stuff at the time and, and just probably, I guess, found, uh, found the frustration then. And it took us a little while to kind of uh, unearth that we actually thought we could ever go at it. Um, and probably about five years later is when we really started to take it seriously as to... Um, okay, and the journey the journey just now then to the, actually making that decision, if I recall correctly from my extensive research, kind of taking you sort of three years or so to, to get to the point now where you've got a product that you're bringing to market. 100%. And, and it's one of those things I never thought it would take that long. Honestly, I, I kind of thought you could have an idea and then have a kind of at least a, a decent finished sample within, I don't know, six months or something. Um, but everything takes way longer um, and ultimately involves more people, more expertise than you can ever, ever imagine. And I suppose with for two guys who don't have a background in apparel or sort of technical outerwear or anything like that, one of the, I guess, taking on a ski jacket as your first kind of venture in that space is probably quite a quite a big mountain to take on straight away so uh we had to learn a lot of a lot of things we had to make a lot of mistakes we had to really understand what matters in outerwear um to, to kind of get to the bottom of it and especially when we were trying to do things in the way that we wanted to so yeah it certainly took far far longer than we expected but uh i guess in the end it's nice to know that we've actually built something genuinely different and genuinely yeah. quite well, I mean, if you look at the website, which is very good, I would say, uh, um, incidentally, you know, you've got four very key features there. It's a recycled, reversible, packable and carbon neutral. And we can come on to all of these things. But I'm particularly interested in the recycled side of things. And uh, I don't know if you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, but in episode 57, uh, we had Rachel from EcoSki on, and she uh, um, is an expert in you know sustainable clothing. Just setting up a business to uh, to sell specifically sustainable clothing, and I really only learned from her at the time about uh, PFCs. But what stood out to me about the Kahaya um, straight jacket is that it's made from recycled plastics, and I imagine working out how to do that probably took some time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess the, the thing is that th this kind of stuff, it is out there. These kind of materials are out there. That kind of insulation is out there. We've not, it's not like we've necessarily gone all scientific and actually created things from scratch. It's just about doing the research because these things aren't mainstream yet. So 
it took a long time to find lots of different fabric suppliers. We had to go to different expos, do lots of research, do lots of, kind of RFPs on the internet to try and sort of see who's out there and what kind of things, what kind of options do we have, order a lot of samples, put those samples through kind of testing to try and understand it. And that takes a long time. And, and, and certainly when it comes to insulation, it's the same thing because I suppose it's impossible to be everything to everyone, but we knew that we wanted to do things in the best way we possibly could. And certainly recycled elements is, is the best way of going about ultimately what needs to be um, kind of a, sort of a polyester style jacket. So by finding those recycled options that use recycled plastic bottles for both, I guess, the two core uh, materials which is kind of the, the the main outer layer as well as the insulation we were we were pretty happy to find those options and in the end it just it makes the jacket that we're much more comfortable with putting out in the world it feels like something that's part of the solution rather than part of the problem ultimately excellent well you know it feels like uh you know, reading it I haven't seen the uh, the product itself but i i like the look of it the fact that it's reversible as well uh, means that you're getting two jackets in one to a certain extent and it's packable it folds down uh, to a very small size i noticed that you've had a, a kickstarter campaign uh, running which looks to me like it's been very successful uh, according to that you've hit your, your target uh, already uh, is that how are you feeling about that yeah delighted yeah i mean kickstarter is an interesting platform i mean ultimately i think maybe 10 years ago it used to be really what it was intended to be it was you kind of come with a with a kind of grain of an idea you put it out into the world and you see if anyone wants to make it happen and and over time it's become a bit more of a kind of a pre-launch platform where you really have to bring a finished product to the uh, to the platform so we realized that eventually um kind of brought um brought our product to the market and we we genuinely got to the point now where we know our our products would look it would fit on the shelves so we had it uh, it wouldn't sort of look out of place so Put on Kickstarter, built some kind of initial interest um, through kind of a bit of marketing and things like that. Went live um, at the start of September and we were funded within about about five days, I think. So we were delighted to kind of reach that target. And um, I suppose it, it's, it's a great way of a ultimately um, getting the jackets in the hands of people, but also getting that that proof of concept to a certain extent as well. And for sure, and, you know, there's a big price uh, advantage in doing it through the Kickstarter route as well, because as far as I can see, it's £99 to get yourself a jacket just now. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the incentive is that at the end of the day, people are people are backing us. People are backing our kind of our vision and our photos and our, and our videos. So there has to be an incentive for them. So they can pick up a jacket for, for £99 now, just as we're kind of coming out of summer, um, a jacket that will be ready for the kind of the core part of the winter. And they can pick it up for... I think about forty-five percent discount as to what the uh, the actual retail price would be. So, so in the end, it kind of they're, they're, there's a win-win for us uh, and the and the end consumer. Great. And uh, one final question for you, uh, Alex. I'm really interested in the name Cahaya Straits. I mean, one thing you know, if someone types that into uh, Google, uh, I'm thinking that you're going to uh, come out on top. Where, what's it inspired by? Is it is it a real place? No, it's, it's not a real place. And it's it's an absolutely an unusual name. And certainly some people have asked us, how do you pronounce that and, and raised eyebrows? I mean, ultimately, we were we were looking for something different. And I suppose sort of the concept is that kind of Cahaya Straits is this kind of idyllic place that we imagine. So when you're kind of living the ski season life, you kind of have this idea of kind of 
it's always bluebird it's always sunny the snow is always perfect the beer is always good and fresh the live music live music is always spot on and that's other things and i suppose sometimes that kind of escapism element is, is is a lovely thing and it's a slightly idealistic view of the world uh kind of a utopia of what the world can be and Obviously, we're reaching far beyond what we can actually achieve there, but it's nice to kind of at least visualise that place. So, Cahaya Street. Who, who knows if you're if you're uh, reaching beyond? You know, I love the idea of a utopia, and I think in the in the crazy world that we're uh, living in at the moment, you know, having aspirational utopias in mind is something that's important to all of us. So, on behalf of the uh, the, the ski podcast, I'd like to wish yourself and uh, and Matt all the best. And if someone Google's Cahaya Straits, they're certainly going to find you, aren't they? They can, they absolutely, they can find us on online or via social media, whatever they, whatever they feel is best. I found it really interesting talking to, uh, to Alex on that call. Um, I wondered, um, in terms of sustainable uh, clothing, uh, you know, Megan, is, is that something that's important to you? Does that influence what you buy when you're getting your, uh, your kit for the winter? Um, I wouldn't say it's the only factor, but it definitely has some sort of influence. Um, you know, you want to buy from a brand that you know is sort of responsible and actually is trying to make a bit of a difference rather than just a brand that's fast fashion and wants to sell you something that's not great quality, but is a really cheap price. Um, personally, sometimes the really, really eco-friendly stuff I find a bit too expensive for me. Um but that's why it's good that there are some companies out there that are doing their best for the environment, but without that sort of hefty price tag of everything being plant-based and all this. So, you know, I've got a Planks jacket, which I really like. And as a brand, they're not sort of the most sustainable you can be, but they're definitely doing their part sort of to help environmental causes and to try and make their materials as sustainable as possible. Um, but obviously there are brands out there that if I could afford them, I would 100% buy from because I just think yeah. the work that they do is amazing and the materials they can make. You sometimes think, oh, because it's this plant-based membrane and all this stuff that it's not actually going to be as good a quality. You think, how can that have the same effect as Gore-Tex or something? But actually, when you go and you try these things on and you look at them, they're actually pretty much the same quality as anything else you could buy. Because in your role with in the snow, do you get to product test? Do you get to see you know each uh, each year's new items? We get to product test a bit. We get to see a lot of the stuff sort of firsthand, um, but perhaps not on snow. Um, but I would say that when we do product test the environmentally friendly stuff, that is my my main takeaway from it is that I'm always kind of I don't know why in my head sometimes I'm just not expecting it to perform quite as well as the stuff that's maybe not exactly as eco-friendly. Um, but I'm always surprised. I'm always left sort of thinking, well, why does anyone bother to buy something that's not sustainable? Because this is so good. So why are we bothering to just not buy this? It, you know, yeah. it's one of those things where you just kind of, you, you step back and you think, oh, we're, we're all getting so used to buying these specific brands that actually we kind of forget that this stuff is out there. Like, you know, like picture organic clothing, that stuff is so highly technical and they've got this, yeah, this plant-based membrane in the outer layers, which is not even made from recycled plastic bottles. It's now made from a bio-sourced sort of polyester. So it's just from cane sugar or something. So 
you just think the the fact they can do that and make a product that is still so good it's just i mean it's just amazing really yeah i mean certainly what you're identifying there is the fact that people are making changes uh, in their purchasing and how it's influenced. We had um, Rachel from EcoSki on episode 57, and I think that business is probably going to be quite successful. They're just going to be a retailer selling purely sustainable uh, clothing. Emily, I suspect your situation might be, I mean, I imagine you probably have sponsors who provide you with uh, your clothing. So maybe your range of choice is more limited. I don't know what you're allowed to say or what, <laughs> what how that works. Um, yeah, I always did have kind of like um, my clothing sponsor and stuff like that. So it wasn't, you were fully aware of kind of like the clothes you're putting on for kind of keeping you warm and doing the job it's supposed to do. I think kind of like, like Megan, I would probably would influence me. But I think the top and bottom for me is being immersed in that environment where it's cold, it's wet, and I want to be warm. And sometimes my training days might be kind of eight hours long and stuff like that. And I, I wanted to keep warm. Having the right quality stuff was always the, the biggest, biggest thing for me. And um, because there's nothing worse than kind of like the water seeping through your bum when you're in the chairlift or something like that. And you're cold <laughs> for the rest of the day. Um, well, you're probably doing a lot of training on glaciers, uh, et cetera, you know, very high. Or you have to also with races, like when I met Dave riding out in the summer in Sass Fay, you've got to get up early as well. You're going to be up there, you know, when the snow is really hard and when it's much colder. Yeah, and it's cold. <laughs> um, and back in my Alpine days, when you were pretty much wearing lycra, you wanted to make sure the layers you could put on top were going to keep you warm. Um, cool. But yeah, I think nowadays as well, there is, there's this massive push, isn't there, for sustainability. And I and I do, I think it's great. And I think every brand is kind of like trying their best to do it. I know I work now with them. Um, with spider brand and you know we we don't have catalogs we're reducing kind of producing um samples so we're doing them all on card and stuff like that just and then we're also kind of like we've got these materials which are made from plastic bottles and stuff within our deals but the biggest thing is a good quality ski clothing or apparel basically that might last you 20 years and that's the biggest thing with spider as there was a guy messaged me who said yeah i still got these uh, this jacket from 1980 well <laughs> to me if he's still using a jacket from 1980s, that's 40 years ago. That's pretty sustainable. That that so... is pretty sustainable. <laughs> I'm I'm not a very good example in terms of you know a, an average consumer. I would say because I don't tend to buy much new uh, ski wear as as um, Jim identified a while ago. I'm still using the free things I was given when I was at Natives. You know when we had different uh, brands sponsoring uh, different events we used to do. And but you know I don't. I don't need them that much. If I was doing seasons or if I was skiing, you know, enough time uh, on snow, maybe it would be slightly uh, different. But, you know, these are all factors that I think people are thinking about more. So the fact that it's um, it's out there and we're discussing it is good. Emily, I, I think that was a really good point Emily just made, though, where, it, you know, you know, I was saying like some of the stuff is is quite expensive. But actually, as you say, Emily, if you're paying that once and it's going to last you for 20 years, then I mean over time it's probably actually cheaper than if you're paying less but you're having to rebuy every five years and I mean like a lot of these brands as well they offer like repair services so you can send something in and get it repaired or you know Patagonia do their worn wear tour where they tour around ski resorts and you can go and have things repaired they're now teaching people how to do it at home because obviously of the lockdown situation yep. I think that's yeah, we... the whole push towards 
keeping something and maintaining it rather than just, oh, it's got a bit of a hole in it. Gonna have to throw it away. And yeah, get new. absolutely. Re reduce, uh, reuse, recycle. And there's another expression which effectively I think you're referring to there, which is buy cheap, buy twice. You know, if you get the right, if you get the right thing, then it, it will cold. last. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, from a sustainability point of view, obviously, um, ski flight free is a um, you know campaign that I start up around it a year ago now, which is amazing. A lot of that is encouraging people to travel by train uh, to the Alps. And um, another podcast I did. Uh, recently was a special about train travel. I had a couple of guests on Daniel Elkin, who I'm sure you both know from Snow Carbon, and Anna Hughes from uh, Flight Free UK. And listen, if you want to listen to that, it's um, over on Facebook, uh, Ski Flight Free, where we record it live. And it'll, it'll come out later uh, this autumn as a podcast special. But I'm just going to put in a little segment uh, now. With, with This is Daniel who's speaking about the recent decision by Eurostar to cancel the ski train. I'm going to hand over to uh, Daniel now. We've both been involved in a, a campaign called Save the Ski Train um, because, unfortunately, Eurostar have announced their intention to cancel that service, certainly for this winter. So, Daniel, do you want to bring us up to date with how that campaign and petition, etc., are looking? Yeah, that's... That's uh, right. Eurostar has announced that it would be hugely unlikely that they could be persuaded for this season to reverse that decision. But they they have said that they haven't um, cancelled it for the following season. They're still open to um, to making it operational. And this train was such a popular train. You get one at London. It stopped at Ashford as well in Kent. And then you're direct all the way to Moutier, Aim, La Plan, and Bourg Saint Marie. So you have about 20 different um, resorts and some really big names and some great names um, in there. And you're dropped off minutes from the from the slopes. I mean, it was a, such a no brainer um, journey. And that's why it was so popular at half term. It would sell out all the ticket, all, all 900, sorry, 750 ticket seats would sell out within four hours of it going on sale. Um, but Eurostar are under such pressure it seems um to try and consolidate and cut costs that they have cancelled that service for for this season they've also interestingly in, interestingly just announced that they've they are suspending services from Ebbsfleet and ashford um until further notice so really they are kind of pulling everything quite tightly to um to their chest so what i think what we're hoping if i understand where we are at the moment uh, correctly i mean there is a petition that people uh, can sign and there's over ten thousand people who signed that petition uh, now i think um, That's right. but we're hoping to kind of start some dialogue with eurostar to try and get them to understand the kind of demands within the ski industry and maybe direct them towards putting something in place for for the winter 21-22? Yeah. Absolutely. There's the petition that anyone can sign, and that's had over 10,000 um, signatures. But we've, all, we're also, we've also written a, a joint letter by more than 160 um, travel companies within the ski industry, uh, including ski resorts too, to Eurostar saying, let's work together 
let's work more effectively because actually the way that Eurostar has operated for years is they just make decisions by themselves. Uh, they don't consult with people and they end up, I mean, the ski train, because it was such a fantastic thing, it sold anyway. But Eurostar has stated this season that one of the reasons that they are cancelling the train for this season is that they're worried about being able to sell tickets. And yet, in the past, they sold tickets without um, engaging very much with the tour operators. Uh, there are plenty of ski tour operators that have wanted to um, be able to package up the ski train as, as part of a rain inclusive ski holiday, and Eurostar basically ignored them, um, much to much to their frustration. So there are some really easy wins, actually, where Eurostar could sell the train more successfully. So if, if you know, circumstances are more challenging with COVID, but if Eurostar is open to working with ski resorts, with tour operators, and with um, um, being open to kind of suggestions for how things could be, the information provision could be better, then I think they would yeah well we have to have to keep our fingers crossed uh on that score but uh, it does seem that uh, you know there's a lot of people behind it and you mentioned you know 140 different companies a lot of those in france as well who are very they're very conscious not just of the fact that it's going to you know affect local business in those hubs such as Bourg saint maurice and uh, moutier but there's a concern there that it's going to increase both congestion and pollution in the valley because it will lead to more people uh, inevitably driving into a resort or arriving by a vehicle instead of arriving by train. So I can give you an update on that because, you know, part of the lobbying that uh, we've been doing uh, in also with uh, Protect Our Winters, uh, both the uh, UK and France in relation to this is, is starting to have some progress. And uh, there's a big lobby of support from France as well, because it affects, as I mentioned uh, in the special, those local uh, businesses and the local areas and they're concerned about pollution and congestion etc as well and uh, SNCF have written to the mairie in the uh, Belleville Valley and in that letter they say that they're looking to reinstate that train for the 21 to 22 season now you know there's some caveats attached to that but I find that incredibly um, positive and I also just want to underline that you know that direct uh, ski train is not the only way of traveling by train to the Alps. But I just wondered if either of you, Megan, have you ever been on the on the ski train, uh, the the direct one from London to uh, the Tarentes? Do you know I haven't. I've always wanted to do it, but it's just that one thing that has always evaded me. It's always been sort of the wrong timings, and or it's been booked up because it gets booked up so quickly nowadays. Yeah. Um, that's why I was so surprised when they cancelled it because obviously it's usually such a popular service um but yeah no i've never done it but i'm definitely keen to so well one hopes that you you will have the opportunity to do it again in fact in that letter from uh, um, sncf they did identify how many people had uh, traveled on it and they say in the last year that there was a full service Uh, there were twenty nine thousand five hundred passengers uh, which they reckon is 6% of all Britons travelling to France for uh, for skiing. But they put that in context by pointing out the number of people who travelled by regular services. Now, obviously, they're not all British, but there's 480,000 people who travel by regular train, how, how I normally travel, changing in Paris. Uh, what about yourself, Emily? Did you, did you or have you ever been on the uh, ski train? 
I've done the one where you're changing parrots. Yes. Um, yeah. So, but as uh, the the main reason why I did it is because of the bag situation. Because hmm. I traveling with so much kit to go to competitions and stuff. On the flights, it was getting crazy when they were adding like another fifty quid for this and another fifty quid for your ski bag, and and I, it just got so the ski train was perfect. Okay, a little bit of an issue when I had to switch at Paris that time. But if you're doing a direct um, train, just unbelievable. So comfy, no stress about queues. You but so just just to track back to that then, Emily. I mean, some people are. Uh, concerned about getting their kit across but how much were you actually getting across Paris then how much did you have with you so I had like my ski bag which had probably four or five pairs of skis about three pairs of poles so that's probably weighing about I don't know 30 30 40 kgs and then add which had my waxing and preparation kit in there as well and then I had my like big massive backpack which has my ski boots my helmet my goggles and for those of you who know me, probably had about 50 pairs of goggles in there. And then I would have, which probably weighs about 20 kgs. And then I had my main kit bag with all of my rest of my gear of about 25. So yeah, so I was was definitely a training because I was, I, I'm a little bit, I was like always on a budget. So I yeah. decided to get the tube or yeah. the Metro in France. Yeah. So I decided to get off the train, get the Metro. Again. I think if I did it again with that much kit, I would probably, um, yeah, just opt for the taxi a lot. Well, that, that <laughs> is very um, admirable. I mean, evidently that, that reflects two things. One is, you know, obviously to race uh, at Olympian level in, in ski across, you've got to be super fit. Uh, for sure, uh, and uh, and yeah, I guess the the other is that you didn't have that kind of funding that's available to some of the skiers now, because I'm pretty sure that none of them would actually be uh, be doing that. But uh, I like that story. So if Emily can do it with 40 kilos of skis over her shoulder, then you can, you, listener, you can definitely get from uh, Gardenor to Garda Lyon. I'd have loved to see faces of everyone on that tube when you got on. I oh, know, honestly, <laughs> much of a help? Did I not help? <laughs> <laughs> the the, yeah. the funny one is when I get on at London as well and try to get to kind of Gatwick or like or wherever or to at that time I was going to where uh, London St Pancreas and it's just like people kind of like what are you doing <laughs> but no it was it was actually really really simple and um, really easy and I just felt so much more relaxed than, than normal and I knew that my kit was getting there because it never left my side right rather than going missing somewhere <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Um. Well, we're reaching uh, the end of the show now. I'm just going to uh, read uh, uh, another five star review that we got on iTunes. So thank you very much to Wacker London, uh, who says uh, this is uh, an understated podcast covering all areas of skiing and is careful to be easy access, easy accessible and seems to cover all levels of proficiency. The guys presenting a knowledgeable, easy to listen to. This bit I, amused me. Sound quality is a little bit 3G. <laughs> as as Emily and uh, Megan will know, today we had a few issues uh, on sound. But as he says, that's mountain to mountain authentic, authenticity, as he or she, I should say, says. As a wealth of information, spanning resorts and guest speakers will be of interest uh, to experience the beginners alike. So hopefully, listener, you found our guest today 
uh, Emily and uh, Megan interesting. I hardly ever review and it's even rever uh, rarer to give five stars, but this is well earned. So thank you very much, Wacker London. And also to Chris Howie, who um, said of our last episode, which was 58, a great episode. Fabulous to hear from Mike Richards re-skiing in Scotland and the Nordics. He has asked if we could do a full episode on skiing in Japan um, because as he uh, points out Mike just knows everything and uh, he, he spends his winters in Japan so we will bring him back uh, Chris and thanks for your uh, thanks for your comments. Uh, I'm also going to chip in about our ski book group we haven't done this for a while I have selected a, a book Megan and Emily you can uh, read this as well as if you'd like to it's called A Whole Life by Robert Seatala uh, it was uh, nominated for the International Booker Prize and essentially I've read it already but listener if you're listening now we'll discuss it a bit more in the next episode in two three weeks time it took me a couple of days to read it's it's not um, you know a thick book but it's a brilliant book and it's really about the whole life of someone who lives in the Austrian Alps. You know, he grows up uh, on a farm uh, in the early 20th century. He sees the rise of tourism around him. The area he lives in becomes a ski resort. Ultimately, he, he becomes a, a mountain guide. And it's a very beautifully written uh, book. So it's called A Whole Life by Robert Seatala. And I'll, I'll put that into the, uh, into the show notes. And uh, that will be in episode 60. Uh, also in episode 60, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jasmine Taylor, uh, telemarker. Have you met Jasmine before, Emily? Yeah, I used to coach her back in the day when <laughs> did she you? did some oh. alpine skiing. Yeah, so um, yeah, I know Jazz pretty well. And she's doing okay. Okay, yeah, well, I'm interviewing her uh, next week, and that will be we'll do that as a Facebook Live, and also be appearing in episode 60 as well. And she's extremely uh, successful telemarker for Team GB. Dave Burrows, friend of the show, will be back on in episode 60. He'll be giving us a, a bit of an insight into Brexit, and if we're lucky, we'll also be discussing uh, new technology uh, as well. So for today, we're coming to a close. I'd like to thank uh, uh, Megan and Emily for taking the time to, to join me today. And uh, listener, if you'd like to give us a, a review, um, that would be fantastic. You can do so on iTunes or you can catch up with us on, uh, on Twitter, The Ski Podcast, Facebook, The Ski Podcast, uh, and obviously theskipodcast.co.uk uh, or .com, uh, where we'll have all of the show notes uh, and links to the different things that Megan and, and Emily have mentioned as well. So thanks very much, everyone. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the Ski Podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.